have a colleague on the seminary faculty who, together with me, teaches a course called Apologetics and Worldview. The course is required of all graduating seniors. And the course, ideally, equips our graduates to critically evaluate alternative worldviews and to defend the Christian faith. And each student is required to write a problem-solving paper within his or her discipline. And the rubric for that paper distinguishes between Bible and Christian worldview. What's the difference? Well, under Bible, in fact, I just saw Kelly over here. Kelly's one of the graders for that paper, so Kelly knows the difference. Under Bible, we expect students to accurately interpret the text. We expect proficiency in hermeneutics. But under Christian worldview, we expect students to think systematically about how the Bible addresses major life questions. Questions like, who am I? What is my purpose? Is there meaning in the universe? What is evil and what can be done about it? Is there a God and what is He like? When you ask worldview questions, there's typically no single passage that you can turn to for a definitive answer. Rather, you have to engage in what is called systematic theology. You have to assimilate what the Bible says in various places about any one topic. In addition, you also have to use tools like science and history to understand God through general revelation. Take, for example, the question, what is God like? Well, there are actually numerous passages that shed light on that question. And so, too, does an investigation of nature, of creation. Now, you know that we have completed Paul's epistle to the Romans, and we have engaged in hermeneutics. We went through the entire book, and we interpreted every line of the text, line by line by line. Along the way, there were a few worldview questions that surfaced, and I did not take the time to address them. In August, when all of our people return and we get our students back, I do plan to launch into the Gospel of John. Really, really looking forward to that. And I hope that you'll go ahead and get started on that, start reading it, meditating on it. We will start the Gospel of John sometime, Lord willing, in the month of August. But for the next several weeks, what I want to do is address a few worldview issues that surface in the book of Romans that also have surfaced in our culture And I really want to equip us to be able to think through these issues and to respond biblically. And today and next Sunday, I want to focus our attention ultimately on a single word that many of us have discussed and some of you have inquired about. It's the word identity. Identity. Identity is discussed everywhere in our culture today. Consider all the questions, questions about racial identity. What does it mean to be black or Latino or Caucasian? How do you respond to the ugly truth that your ancestors were enslaved or that your Native American ancestors were willfully exterminated or reduced to poverty by terrible government policies? 
There are questions about sexual identity. If a person has been same-sex attracted for as long as he or she can remember, did God make him that way? Questions about gender identity. New gender categories have grown exponentially over the last two decades. Questions about identity politics and how voting blocks can sway elections and determine the destiny of a country, supposedly. Questions about poverty and wealth identity and the justice or injustice of capitalism. These are the questions in our culture, but there are questions about identity that creep right into the church and questions that really do affect us here at UBC. Where do you find your identity when your spouse abandons you for another person? Is there a scarlet letter D that you carry around everywhere you go for divorce? Where do you find your identity when you cross over that retirement threshold? And you can no longer be defined by your work. There are no more promotions. Turn off the lights in the lecture hall or the laboratory and walk away. Who are you now? Pastors can struggle with a sense of identity when they preach a farewell sermon. Who's that young guy in the pulpit that everybody likes better than me now? It'll probably happen to me, I'm sure. Who are you when the baby graduates? And you can no longer, and you now return home to an empty house. That really does trouble people. Who are you when you're suddenly caring for a spouse whose health is ebbing away, and you're just looking down this long, dark corridor that ends in separation? Who are you when you've desired children for years, and the Lord has not delivered? Who are you when no one ever requested your hand in marriage? Who are you when you face debilitating health difficulties for many, many years? Do you ever feel like you're just a, you're a drain on the church's resources and you wish you could serve others and they're serving you? And who are you? I'm asking questions about reality. Will we let the Scripture really just guide us to an answer? Are we going to find our identity in scriptural categories? In this classic work, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, an Auschwitz survivor and psychologist, describes how the Nazi regime turned people into animals through a process that he called depersonalization. He writes that they strip men of their material goods upon entry into the camp camps. They strip them of their clothing. They strip them of their names. Replace their names with a tattoo emblazoned on their arms. But Franco said the prisoners remained human because of their mental furniture. They had hope. They had desire. They had a sense of longing. They could apply their minds above the level of beasts and ask questions about ultimate meaning purpose, justice in the universe, and whether it might exist someday. These questions, Franco said, literally just kept the prisoners alive in those prison camps. But once the Nazis succeeded in silencing the ultimate questions, the worldview questions, Franco writes, prisoners became beasts. They shriveled up in a corner and died. 
Jacob Ranowski was a Polish-born Jewish immigrant to Britain. He was a polymath, excelling in mathematics, science, and history. During the Second World War, he worked as a mathematician, developing bombing strategies for the British Royal Air Force. Bernowski is probably best remembered for a 13-part uh, BBC television series called The Ascent of Man. It's also been published in a book. It was produced in 1973, the year before he died. And it was a celebration of the evolutionary rise of humanity on the planet. Like Franco, Bernowski really struggled to interpret the Holocaust. How could he account for family members lost in the Holocaust if, in fact, men had evolved to such a high level of civilization? In a dramatic scene, Bernowski tours Auschwitz. And he turns suddenly to the camera and he says, look for yourself. This is the concentration camp and crematorium at Auschwitz. This is where people were turned into numbers. Into this pond were flushed the ashes of some four million people. And that was not done by gas. It was done by arrogance. It was done by dogma. It was done by ignorance. When people believe that they have absolute knowledge, this is how they behave. This is what men do when they aspire to the knowledge of God's. Bronowski then plunges into the swamp. And he says, I owe it as a human being to the many members of my family who died here to stand here as a survivor and a witness. We have to cure ourselves of the itch for absolute knowledge and power. We have to touch people. And with his right hand, he reaches down, scooping out a handful of black mud and reeking debris from the fetid waters. This agonizing scene exposes a systematic flaw that runs right through his evolutionary worldview. We are descendants of animals. Strong animals prevail over weak. Nazis prevail over Jews. Why should it be otherwise? Without a Creator God to determine right from wrong, what is sin? What is evil? What is the meaning of human existence? Where does human dignity come from apart from God? Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, writes, the universe has no evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Well, if our cold, indifferent universe cannot shed a pitiful tear over Auschwitz, then why should we? I wonder whether we have any better solution in the Christian worldview. This is not supposed to be a negative sermon to depress everybody. Do we have a better solution? Augustine thought so. In his confessions, he tells of living a life of sensuality and debauchery. He became a thief. He pursued sexual pleasures. He abandoned God's view of marriage. He rejected the prayers of his mother for his own soul. But at long last, the prodigal son found himself with nothing but the husk thrown to the hogs. 
And he turned to Christ, confessing famously, You have made us for Yourself. O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in You. What do you think about that word restless? Restlessness. Would you say that word is precisely the issue we face in our culture today? There is tremendous restlessness all through our nation. People are forever looking for new ways to understand and to define themselves. New ideological frameworks in which to express their gender or their sexuality. New theories through which to interpret their race and ethnicity. They are forever looking for the next sociological theorist to come along and finally make sense of American history. I don't think I have to tell many of you that scholarship is restless. And it always has been. You don't get recognized for supporting the last guy's theories. You have to come up with new ones. That's how you make a name for yourself. And all through human history, people have turned to race, gender, sexuality, vocation, religion, philosophy, wealth, family, and pedigree to give themselves a new sense of identity. And we're still restless. We are still trying to discover ourselves. I mean, you just read the biographies of the most accomplished, wealthy, and celebrated people in all the world, and you will discover, running right through those biographies, is a spirit of restlessness. I recently read the biography of Elon Musk. Talk about a very restless soul. So friends, where do we turn for our sense of identity? For the believer, when we set about to discover our identity, the most important question is not what does the Bible say about identity? The most important question is this, what does the Bible say about everything? And I know you've heard that question before because I asked it last week in a very different context when we talked about the pandemic. First question about coronavirus is not what does the Bible say about disease, it's what does the Bible say about everything? Let's just modify that question slightly for our purposes this morning. What does the Bible say about our humanity? That's where you must begin. And let me begin with three non-negotiables, clearly articulated in Scripture. These really are at the heart and soul of the biblical view of man. Number one, man was created perfect in the image and likeness of God. That is just non-negotiable for the Bible-believing Christian. We were created perfect in the image and likeness of God. And God was very satisfied with what He created in the garden. Here's a second non-negotiable. Man is fallen. All men everywhere are fallen. If you believe in the gospel, you must embrace the fallenness of mankind. There are no exceptions. With the exception of Christ, of course. Thirdly, man is redeemable through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
Those are the three truths that you must hold before you ever begin to explore your identity. Now, I really do want to address points two and three this morning, but the fact that we were created perfect in the image and likeness of God really is an all-important starting point. Biblically speaking, this is where we get our sense of dignity, our sense of nobility. This is where we get our sense of meaning and value. This is where we get our morality from. This is where we get our sense of purpose from. We are created in the image and likeness of God. The evolutionary worldview turns us into animals and flushes human ashes into swamps. This is not the biblical worldview. The Christian worldview says that our value as human beings derives directly from God Himself. And only as we are restored into His image can we ever discover our true created identity. But as wonderful as it is to consider being created in the image and likeness of God, we've got to face the grim reality that we are now fallen. Every last one of us. And let's turn to Romans 5 and let's just really embrace this truth and discover what God has done about it. Yes, I know that I turned to this passage last week also, but I will not re-preach that sermon. Romans 5. In doing so, we are skipping over chapters 1 through 3 where Paul has described humanity as totally depraved, with no exceptions. And I dare say that we probably bristle at some of Paul's descriptions of our fallenness. When I read through Romans 1 through 3, I'm thinking, really, does this describe me? Am I really that bad? There is none righteous, no, not one. Our desires are fallen. Our reason is fallen. Our men talked about this last Wednesday night. Even our thinking capacity, our rational capacity is fallen. Our affections are fallen. Our minds are fallen. Our values are fallen. Everything about us is twisted and distorted and skewed away from the image and likeness of God. And unless we own up to Romans 5 and verse 12, we are not going to evaluate our identity in biblical categories. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We all sinned in Adam. Paul insists that there was a moment in time when sin, evil, and death just invaded our world. One man, Adam, brought a new condition into the world. How else do you explain four million deaths at Auschwitz? Death spread to all men because all sin. Now, when we worked through chapter 5, we explored a variety of issues raised by this text. I think we spent maybe three sermons on this text alone. And I'm not going to return to any of that now. Suffice it to say that in Adam all humanity sinned, and in Adam all humanity died. But here's where the Christian worldview departs radically from the atheist worldview. We do not dismiss evil as a non-reality as Richard Dawkins does. Evil resulted from a space-time literal rebellion against a good creator God. 
Why is there evil in the world? Why are there holocausts, genocides, murders, rapes, thefts, child abuse? Why is this out there in the world? The answer is right there in verse 12. We all sinned. Christianity does not deny, dilute, or ignore the question of evil. You cannot read more than three short chapters into your Bible without stumbling onto the explanation. In Adam, humanity rebelled. Evil and death just invaded the creation. And the Bible really is emphatic. We all sinned in Adam. We are all fallen in Adam. And since the fall, this is our foundational reality. This is our fundamental identity. We are fallen in Adam. And Paul will make the same point in 1 Corinthians 15. In Adam, we all died. There is none righteous, no, not one. And that means that if you come to me with questions about your identity, I'm going to assume that you are fallen, as am I. I have students who come and talk to me about their sexual attractions and desires. Sometimes they assume that if they've always felt a particular way, well, that must be normal. My response is always the same. Look, you're fallen. I was characterized by sins that my parents really had to deal with. I feel like I was born with those sins. I was born fallen. I'm willing to talk to anybody, but you've got to understand where I'm coming from. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. And that means I believe that your desires are fallen, your reason is fallen, your capacity to think is fallen, your affections are fallen, your mind is fallen, your values are fallen. And if you want me just to affirm you, you've just you've come to the wrong person, I can't do that. Now why is it so critical that we point people to their fallenness? Well, to return to Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Affirming your restlessness is only going to make it worse. Former homosexual Sam Albury writes, desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. Don't tell me, Dr. Dawkins, there's no evil in the world. You'll never find a solution for a non-existent problem. It's like the doctor that I had when I was 17. I went to see him because I had this crippling pain in my chest, and he said, there's nothing wrong with you. I'm saying, yes, there is something wrong with me. I can't sleep. It's excruciating. Well, there's nothing wrong with you. Well, thankfully, he referred me to a second doctor, and that doctor discovered cancer. And that's really bad news, but that's also very good news. Because when you discover the problem, you can start working toward a solution. So what can be done about our fallenness? The biblical answer, friends, is literally, literally a new humanity. So here again is our third point. Man is redeemable through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Let's explore this in verses 15 through 17. In these verses, Paul introduces a major contrast between Jesus Christ and Adam. He writes, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, 
abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Do you notice in these three verses, the term free gift appeared some five times against the terrible backdrop of a fallen world. And that free gift contrasts radically with Adam's trespass. God commanded Adam to refrain from partaking of the forbidden tree in the garden. Do not partake. But Adam transgressed that command. And Adam died. And when he died, many died. Now Paul does not use many here as a subset of all, as if many died but a few didn't. That's not what he means. He uses it as the antithesis of one. One transgression, many deaths. Multiplication of deaths. But here's the dramatic contrast. One free gift, life for many. If you think that God is unfair for judging all in Adam, you've got to recall the contrast. A free gift to all those in Christ. And by the way, don't you assume that you would have done otherwise in Adam? You don't know that. And if there's still a question in your mind concerning God's fairness, then read verse 16 very carefully. God's free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. Pause. There is something dissimilar between Christ and Adam. What is the dissimilarity? Well, keep reading. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So what's the dissimilarity? Well, follow this very carefully. Judgment follows one trespass. The free gift follows many trespasses. That's the dissimilarity. That's a profound dissimilarity. Here's what you would expect the text to say. Judgment follows one trespass. Many judgments follow many trespasses. Right? That's how it should read. Judgment follows one trespass. Well, if that's true then many judgments should follow many trespasses. Again, if judgment follows one trespass, then why wouldn't you expect many more judgments? But that's not what follows. What follows more trespasses is the multiplication, the free gift bringing justification. That is a profound dissimilarity. Judgment came into the world after one great transgression. And God knew that was just the first of billions upon billions upon billions of transgressions still to come. 
So how does God respond immediately to Adam's single trespass? Genesis 3.15, I am going to send a deliverer. Even before God witnessed the rapid dissemination of transgression all over the globe through Adam's descendants, God already intervened and promised deliverance. You sinned in Adam, that's true. Romans 5 and verse 12. But before you ever sinned again, in fact, before you're even born, God has already promised you a free gift. And that's why in verse 17, Paul uses the term abundance of grace. God responded to Adam's transgression with the abundant grace of a free gift through one man, Jesus Christ. And what is that free gift? Well, notice the phrase in verse 17 following free gift. The free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That reads perhaps a little awkwardly to us. Paul is claiming there was a humanity that died in unrighteousness in Adam. But God, by His free gift, has given us new life, a new life of righteousness in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 18-21, through 21, Paul is going to continue with the same line of reasoning. But the verses actually form a bit more of a comparison Then a contrast, let's read them. Verses 18 through 19, first of all. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Again, in verses 15 through 17, Paul just highlighted the dissimilarity between Adam's transgression and Christ's free gift. And that contrast is still apparent here in verses 18 through 19, but the emphasis falls more on a comparison. Let's just, let's just notice the comparison. Let's line up Jesus and Adam. Let's place them side by side, and what do we see? All right, here we go. Adam, one trespass. Christ, one act of righteousness. Adam, condemnation. Christ, justification. Adam over here, disobedience. Christ, obedience. Adam, many made sinners. Christ, Many made righteous. When you just line up Adam and Jesus, it's apparent that one cancels out the other. That's what Paul is arguing. Everything that went wrong in Adam's gets canceled out by Christ. And friends, that's the true cancel culture that we need, is it not? There's all kinds of discussion about cancel culture. I understand some of that discussion and dialogue, but really what we need is something much more profound. We need a Savior who's just going to cancel it all out. All the wickedness, all the depravity, all the genocide, all the slavery. 
We want someone to come along and just cancel it all and to give us new life. And that's precisely what Paul is arguing. Christ just comes along and cancels out Adam. Adam's trespass is negated by Christ's act of righteousness. Adam's condemnation is negated by Christ's justification. Adam's disobedience is negated by Christ's obedience. The effect of Adam's sin on other sinners is negated by the effect of Christ's righteousness on sinners. The famous British pulpiteer David Martin Lloyd-Jones put it very well. Look at yourself in Adam. Though you had done nothing, you were declared a sinner. Look at yourself in Christ and see that though you have done nothing, you are declared to be righteous. That is the parallel. Now, what does all this have to do with questions about identity? Well, biblically speaking, friends, there are two ultimate identities. That's it. No more. Just two. There are two humanities. The humanity of Adam and the new humanity of Jesus Christ. That's it. And you can identify with Adam and you can identify with Jesus Christ, the second Adam. But the Bible, God himself, is not going to give you any other options. Now, don't misunderstand. The Bible does speak of issues of racial identity and ethnic tension. That is a reality in our world. It goes all the way back to the beginning. The Bible has a great deal to say about hostility between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, we spent a whole summer last summer just dealing with issues in our culture and dealing with the aftermath of the George Floyd killing and, and, and really just tried to look at all this biblically because we have to. We really need to think biblically about these issues. But I'm, go, I'm, I'm going beyond all that and saying at the foundation, we've got really two options, Adam and Christ. The Bible also speaks of gender identity. It speaks of male and female. The Bible freely acknowledges in many places that tensions do exist between male and female. I don't want to deny that. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. The Bible also speaks about employment identity. In biblical times, there were slaves and freemen. And we do have to think about how the gospel affects how we think about our vocations and about people that we work with. Paul has to address Philemon on this issue. How do you think about Onesimus in gospel categories? I'm not denying any of that. You understand that. Paul also speaks, or the Bible also speaks about wealth inequality and identity, the rich and the poor, and how we're supposed to think about all these issues. It's true. The Bible speaks about marital identity and the solidarity of the husband and the wife. The Bible also acknowledges that sin can just permanently sever that relationship. The Bible speaks to children and their identity to their par- with their parents. The Bible even acknowledges those transitions that happen in life, like retirement transitions. All this is absolutely true. But again, I'm not dealing with those issues specifically. If we're going to really embrace a biblical view of the world, you must address each of these issues within the fundamental context of these two options. We can live out our identity in Adam, or we can live out our new identity in Christ. That's it. There are no other options. And here's the problem, I think, with so much psychology and sociological theory today. 
it really fails to begin with a biblical worldview through which these questions need to be addressed. Again, address these questions, but do so within the context of a biblical worldview. And here's what the Bible says about everything. First, man was created perfect in the image and likeness of God. Begin there. Second, man has fallen, every last one of us. And thirdly, man is redeemable through the incarnation of Christ. That's where the solution comes in. Now, if you embrace the biblical view of the world as a believer, your first and foremost consideration is not, how do I find my identity in my marriage, or my children, my sexuality, my career, peer approval, or even my gender? It's not the first question. And if you go looking for your primary identity in those places, you are going to be sadly disappointed. You really will be. You will be restless. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And friends, can I just say it this way? Your spouse will never affirm you the way Christ does in pardoning your sin and resurrecting your humanity. Marriage is a wonderful gift of God. But in Christ, we find our true identity. You are not going to find satisfaction by discovering someone who affirms your sexual desires if, in fact, they are misaligned with God's original intent for humanity. It's not going to happen. Your wealth, your career mobility, your name recognition will never bring you the joy that can be found in Christ alone. In fact, some of the most miserable Christians I know have a great deal of money and are very successful. Friends, if you cannot find joy in your new humanity in Christ, you are never going to find joy in reparations on behalf of your abused ancestors. Only Christ can right all past wrongs. Only Christ can cancel out many transgressions And again, I'm not trying to take a position politically. I do believe there's reasons to think through these issues. But if you're ultimately looking for satisfaction in the government repairing everything, it's not going to happen. Christ alone, Christ alone can cancel out many transgressions. Those in the workforce often think they'll be so much happier when they retire. Lots of time, right? And retirees often long to be productive and to go right back to the workforce. Well, neither is looking in the right place. Joy comes through our new humanity in Christ. This is really what the Bible says about everything. In Adam is misery. In Jesus Christ is infinite joy. So these have to be our foundational options. Two options, in Adam or in Christ. Many years ago, I read the atheist Albert Camus' work, The Rebel. And I was really struck by his candid acknowledgement of the absolute superiority of the Christian worldview. I want to conclude by just reading some of what he says. He writes, Only two possible worlds can exist for the human mind. The sacred or to speak in Christian terms, the world of grace, or the world of rebellion. 
The disappearance of one is equivalent to the appearance of the other. Friends, that's it precisely. We can acknowledge our fallen, rebellious identity. Or we can seek our new identity in Christ in the world full of grace. Camus continues describing the restless rebel. The rebel defies more than he denies. Originally, at least, he does not suppress God. He merely talks to him as an equal. But it is not a polite dialogue. It is a polemic animated by the desire to conquer. The slave begins by demanding justice and ends by wanting to wear a crown. He must dominate in his turn. His insurrection against his condition becomes an unlimited campaign against the heavens for the purpose of bringing back a captive king who will first be dethroned and finally condemned to death. Human rebellion ends in metaphysical revolution. When the throne of God is overturned, listen to this, the rebel realizes it is now his own responsibility to create justice, order, and unity, and in this way to justify the fall of God. Well, friends, that's it. The rebel defies God and pursues his fallen identity in Adam. And in Adam, he rewrites all God's rules. What God condemns, he affirms. What God loves, he perverts. But then Camus faces reality. What does a world without God actually look like? This is astonishing. Here's what he writes. If nothing has any meaning... And if we can affirm no values whatsoever, then everything is possible and nothing has any importance. There is no pro or con. The murder is neither right nor wrong. We are free to stoke the crematory fires of Auschwitz or to devote ourselves to the care of lepers. Evil and virtue are mere chance or caprice. Since nothing is either true or false, good or bad, Our guiding principle will be to demonstrate that we are the most efficient. In other words, the strongest. Friends, that's the Darwinian worldview at the heart of our culture. That's the worldview that flushed the ashes of millions of Jews into the swamp. When the throne of God is overturned, we ultimately have no values at all. But in Camus, if you've ever read a lot about him, you know there was a restlessness. He never found meaningful identity in his atheism. And listen to what he writes. Christ came to solve two major problems, evil and death, which are precisely the problems that preoccupy the rebel. His solution consisted first in experiencing them. The God-man suffers too with patience. The night on Golgotha is so important in history, in the history of man, only because in its shadow the divinity abandoned its traditional privileges and drank to the last drop. Despair included the agony of death. This is the explanation of a Lama Sabachthani and the heart-rending doubt of Christ in agony. This is really stunning. One of the most outspoken, critically acclaimed atheists in modern history, admitting that Christianity has the solution. I can find my identity in Adam, or I can find it in Christ. 
Friends, Christ just canceled out Adam's sin. And Christ offers superabounding eternal grace to cancel out every last one of your transgressions. That only in Christ can I discover my true God-intended identity. My sin, my lust, my affections no longer have to define me. People may sin against you. A spouse may walk away from your marriage, but your primary identity is in Christ. Your hands may be swollen and arthritic because of the curse, and you're forced to retire. But your true identity never was in your job. It was in Christ all along. Those lusts that you pursued never brought lasting joy, the joy that you hoped for. But like Augustine, you found your joy in Christ. And friends, when you really understand this, you really do understand the passion of our church. Bringing people to Christ and Christ-likeness. Our desire is to help the restless sons of Adam to find joy in their new identity in Christ. Shall we pray? Our Father, we are thankful that you have not hidden truth from us. We are so grateful, Lord, for the new identity that we have discovered in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for his resurrected humanity. We thank you for his spirit that even now indwells us and who is recreating us. And Lord, who will restore us ultimately into the perfect image of the perfect human, the resurrected Son of God. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here today who has not found his or her true identity in Christ, this may be a day, Lord, where they discover the joy of the Christian view of reality and might really come to adopt it as your own. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.